week two of Matthew, and this morning we're looking at the, the birth of Jesus story. Now, what's interesting here is that Matthew doesn't spend a lot of time on the birth story. Luke is kind of the one we go to at Christmas. Um, typically, he spends, because and I, I think at least the reason for that is Matthew is, he's organizing things based on some specific Old Testament prophecies. That he's saying Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah that had been prophesied so many times in the Old Testament. So he's organizing things around those specific prophecies. And I'm going to show you those this morning. Okay, so let's look at Matthew 1 starting in verse 18. We'll just start with 18 through 25. Here's what it says. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here's the quote from the prophet. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay, so first of all, if you don't know what betrothed mean, there in verse 18, that was the the Hebrew custom for marriage was was you would, uh, we think of it as engagement, but it was different. Um, A betrothal in this time and culture was a legally binding agreement. You were considered husband and wife at that point but the husband once the betrothal had happened he would go away and he would prepare a place for the wife to live typically just build an extension on this family home if he didn't have a family home he would get one okay and then he'd come back in this big like loud celebratory marriage procession back to her house and pick surprise it wasn't ever really a surprise she knew um, that he was coming, but, but surprise, I'm here, and, and she would go, oh, you're here, and they would go away in another big party procession back to the house, okay? Um, so the, they were in, Joseph and Mary were in that betrothal period, okay? Um, so it's more than an engagement. It's legally binding. They are basically married, but not together yet. They've got about a, sometimes it would take up to a year, sometimes less, sort of depending on how wealthy the husband was. All right, so the first thing we see here is there's this miracle, this strange miracle, and the way Matthew mentions it is, is just very matter-of-factly that um, Mary was a virgin who was also pregnant. Now, you may be scratching your head if you remember your biology class from when you were younger, that that's not really possible by any natural means. There's kids here, so I'm being careful. You get what I'm saying, right? And so, so this is a miracle. Okay, this is a miraculous event, and what's interesting to me is that lots of people have a real hard time with the virgin birth, but they accept the resurrection. 
and they accept that God created everything with the word out of his mouth. But for some reason, the virgin birth is constantly kind of going, I don't know about that. I'm like, come on, God just spoke you into existence, and you have a hard time with this, but whatever, all right? It comes under attack almost, it seems like every generation's got a new crop of people going, I don't believe the virgin birth. So I want to just talk about that for just a second. We accept this simply because God said it's what he did. Okay, it is the consistent witness of Scripture that this is what happened. Now, why did God do it this way? I don't know. God does miracles. He does them the way he wants to do them, and that's that, okay? But the virgin birth teaches us, I think, four super important things, okay? By the way, these are in the notes. I think there's notes back there somewhere. Also, there's notes online linked in the description of the video if you're joining us there. So here's the four things. Jesus, one, Jesus did not have a sin nature, okay? Romans 5 seems to tell us that our sin nature passes on from our Father. Sorry, guys. Seems to be what Paul is saying there. Jesus did not get a sin nature from Joseph because Joseph was not his bio dad, okay? This does not mean that Jesus was not tempted to sin. It just means that he began with a blank slate. He, began, he was sinless even in his nature. He was not born in sin, we could say. Secondly, this means that Jesus was fully human. He was born of a woman. He was born. He was fully human. He had flesh and blood and DNA and a body, and it wasn't just the appearance of a body. It was real. Okay, one of the ways we know that is not just at the virgin birth, but Jesus walked around and talked. He ate. He slept. He got tired. He, he kicked over tables in the temple like an apparition can't do that right? He, and when he rose again, what, he went to Thomas and he said, look, there's holes in my hand. He had a physical body so much so that he had scars after the crucifixion. Jesus was fully human. It also shows us, number three, Jesus was distinguished from all other men. He's not like us in a very particular way. He comes from a woman, but he also comes from God. Jesus' miraculous birth distinguishes him from all other human beings and points us towards his divinity. Jesus is fully man and fully God. And fourthly, Jesus was born and he was preexistent. Get your head around that. That's a hard one, isn't it? But it's true. Jesus was born of a woman and also preexistent as a member of the Trinity. The virgin birth allows the Messiah to claim both of those things. So you can see why. When we go, I don't know about the virgin birth, you're actually giving up quite a lot when you do that, okay? All right, so I, let's focus for a minute on what Matthew, I think, is focusing on in this scripture, which is this quote where he talks about Jesus is the Messiah, and the Messiah has this name, Emmanuel. And he goes so far as to define what that word means, just in case... We don't know. This is a rare thing in Scripture. You don't have to pull out a, a Hebrew dictionary to figure out what does Emmanuel mean. He tells you right there. He says it means God with us. He doesn't want us to miss the point of this. This is a quote from Isaiah 7:14. So obviously Matthew is saying that the birth of Jesus was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that a son would be born of a virgin and would be the embodiment of the presence of God himself. 
This, this is amazing, okay, because this promise, this prophetic promise was given 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years is a long time. This is not just a one-way promise. God himself has wanted to be with us from the beginning. Remember back in Genesis when it tells us that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. God was with them. This is before sin entered the world. And what did God do? What was their main activity that they did with God? They walked around with him and hung out with him and talked with him in person. I don't know what that looked like, but it had to have been pretty cool. To get up every day and the first thing you do in the day is go outside and the weather's perfect. It's not too humid, it's not too hot. And you go outside and nature has, is unbroken by sin. I don't know what that looked like, but it was pretty cool. And what are you looking for? You're looking for God who's just hanging out and waiting to just walk around with you and enjoy the outdoors. That is what they had. God was with them and sin broke that, right? This is what God's intent was from the beginning, was to be with us, not to be separate from us. So Jesus' entrance into the world is not only about removing sin from us and removing sin from creation. It's about God being with us. God wants to be with you. That's what Jesus was doing. If We jump all, jump all the way to the end of Matthew. Look at what Jesus says. This is Jesus' last words before he leaves. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All right, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And look at this last sentence. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's goal. This is the point. And even the point of the Great Commission is that he wants to have more people with him. He wants a bigger and bigger family that he can hang out with and be with and walk with and fellowship with and bless and love throughout eternity. This is God's goal, and it has been from the beginning. I think these are bookends from Genesis to Jesus' ascension are the bookends of time. And it's his whole point is he wants peace. He made us to fellowship with him, and that's his goal. Interestingly enough, after the Great Commission, right, Jesus says, I'm going to be with you, and then what's he do? He goes, and goes, disappears into the sky, as it's described. Well, which is it, Jesus? You said, I'm going to be with you, and then you leave. We thought you were dead, then you rose again, we're like, woohoo, he's still with us. He says, I'm going to be with you forever, like, that's even better news, and then he goes away. You ever feel like that with God? He tells you he's going to do something, and then it seems to go the other way for a little while. Nine or ten days later, something amazing happened. The Holy Spirit descends on the 12 disciples waiting in the upper room. Jesus had left, but what did he do? He sent the Spirit in his place. And now he's not physically with just 12 people because it's about the only, you know, however many people you could fit in a room. Now he's able to be with everyone by his Spirit. The, the first act of the Spirit through those 12 who he had descended on in that room was to do what? To form the church. 
Thousands of people got saved that day. Boom, church started. And what happened to the church? It just scattered all over the earth, bringing with them the presence of Christ. This is what Jesus is after. This is what God is after. And then what does Paul call the church in 1 Corinthians 12? Remember this? He calls us the body of Christ. That's not just a a, a philosophical metaphor to help us understand how to act. He's saying we are the physical embodiment of Christ on the earth. We are the presence of Jesus to each other. That makes church a pretty big deal, doesn't it? You say, I just want to experience the presence of God. The main way God gave us to do that was each other. Ever thought about that before? We tend to think of experiencing God as a private, personal experience. And it is. Okay. But it's also more than that. If I want to know if God is real and present, the main way that I know, that I think the most reliable way, the least subjective way, is I see you. And I talk to you. We are present with each other. And I experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ through you in my life. And I know that God is with me. God's people is the body. The church, by the Holy Spirit, is the continuing incarnation of Christ in the world. It's amazing and beautiful to me. It's honestly what makes me get up in the morning and makes me be a pastor. It's it's that I know that I really actually believe this is true. I think right now, with especially those of you online, that this is really this truth is being challenged pretty deeply. I think some of us are finding out that we are hungry and thirsty for just the presence of Christ and other people around us, but it's also being challenged. I think if you're online, this is especially hard because you ha- you're constantly confronted, I think, with two things. One is, <clears throat> is safety first or not? And the other is, is convenience first or not? And both are really tempting things to believe. And lots of really good reasons, by the way, for you not to be here physically, all right? This is not me putting a guilt trip. I think these are things you have to guard yourself against all the time. God, help me not begin to think that the highest priority of my life is my safety or the highest priority of my life is my convenience. Because it's really convenient not to have to get up and come to church, isn't it? I don't have to corral my kids into the car. It's like herding cats. Just getting me in the car, it's like herding cats. Not herding H-U-R-T. I wouldn't advocate for such a thing. Herding, H-E-R-D, right? <clears throat> herding, it's, it's hard. And then you've got to deal with people. Because sometimes we don't seem like the presence of Christ to each other. We seem like the presence of the devil to each other. Sometimes. And so this is something we have to guard ourselves against. And I think in this time when things are so convenient and the world is constantly telling us that safety is first, we have to realize it's not. Everybody decides what risk is important and worth it to themselves. It's not something I can decide for you. So that's up to you. I just want to encourage those of you online especially to guard your hearts against those temptations. Find creative ways to be present 
with other believers. You can stand 10 feet apart and stand in a plexiglass box if you want, but do it, all right? <clears throat> okay, so let's move to the next section because Matthew's doing a similar thing here. He's going to go to another Old Testament prophecy that is related to the Emmanuel, God with us prophecy, okay? Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Actually, I think I already read that. Um, the other thing you see in, those, in this, uh, let me, what did I read before? I don't want to leave it out. I read through verse 24. Okay. Yeah, let's read Matthew 2, 1 through 12. It says this. Sorry, Owen, my notes are messed up. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Here's the quote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, or for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay, so these magi, who were, we don't really know who they were, they were ast astronomers, maybe astrologers, it was all kind of mixed together at the time. They had figured out, they were from the east, maybe Persia somewhere, modern-day Iraq area of the world, and they had figured out by looking at the stars that this prophesied Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, was coming based on their read of the stars. And they were right. And they went and they, they start looking around and asking questions. And Herod gets word of it. Herod also knows, he figures out through the scribes and Pharisees, who's this king of the Jews that's supposed to come? He's concerned because that's competition for him. Because he had demanded at least part of the country refer to him as their king. They had allowances for not worshiping, but they had to call him their king. He had made himself the king, and now there's this story, this threatening story coming out that this king is going to be born, and he's not happy about it. He brings the magi in. He says, hey, when you find him, come let me know where he is. I want to worship him. Of course, he doesn't right? He wants to find out. He wants to let them kind of suss it out for him and find him, and he's going to go in and kill him. God comes to the three magi after they bow down and worship Jesus, right? Remember that? that, that that's the well-known Christmas story. <clears throat> but instead of going back to him, they have a dream, or at least one of them has a dream, wherein another angel of the Lord comes to these guys and says, hey, don't, don't go back to Harry. Just go home. So they slip away and they go back home and never tell Herod. Herod gets upset. And what's he do about it? He does something horrible. 
By the way, Joseph is also warned in verses 13 to 15, the same way an angel tells Joseph in a dream, Herod's going to try to kill your son Jesus. Go to Egypt. So Joseph and Mary take Jesus, and they slip away in the night and go to Egypt to avoid Herod because what Herod does next is he orders the, all the male children in Bethlehem to be killed who were under two years of age. That's a hard thing to imagine. It's probably based on the size and population of Bethlehem. There's anywhere from a dozen to two dozen babies killed in the night. Imagine somebody coming and knocking on your door and a soldier grabbing your two-year-old. It's awful. And so what we get here is at the end of this event, as the women are out crying, it says, let's look at chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Here's your next quote. He says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. So Herod resorts to this brutal thing. Verse 18 is a quote from Jeremiah 31, 15. And in that story, in Jeremiah 31, the people of God are sent into exile. They, they have been forced out of their homes, right? And Rachel weeps because they are no longer a people who have a home. And they are now being abused by the world, kicked around, hurt, abused, and sent out of their homeland, scattered into exile. And she weeps. And what we see here is that Rachel is sort of the idealized mother of Israel. Okay, so you personify Israel. If, if Israel was a woman or a child, we could say, Rachel would be kind of like her mother. It's a poetic thing to say. She is seen as the idealized mother of Israel, and she is weeping over her children, Israel, okay? She weeps because the people are being sent into exile. They're no longer a nation. And then here in Matthew 1, Matthew tells us that that has been fulfilled in this event. How so? I think a couple of ways. One is, I think the main one is, Jesus comes. And what is Jesus going to do? He's going to wipe away every tear. That's what we're waiting for in his second coming. Is it? But also, Jesus, God, is with them in their suffering. He stands with them. He is Emmanuel. So when Rachel weeps over her people because they are being scattered and abused and hurt, and they have been, their identity in many ways has been removed or at least threatened, God doesn't stand at a distance. He comes into that suffering with them, and he stands with them. He says, I'm with you. And so Jesus climbs the hill onto the cross. And part of what he's saying is not just I'm taking away your sin. He's saying I'm suffering with you. And then that cross and that resurrection is a promise that one day he is going to return and wipe away every tear. So what are we to conclude from this? We tend to think, I think, of the coming Messiah as essentially being about removing sin or paying our sin debt, which is true. I don't want you to go away from here thinking it's not true. It is true, but it's more than that. 
For Israel and for us, it was more. It was about the distance sin creates between us and God, and it was about having some future hope in a dark world of injustice and evil and wickedness. When the Messiah was born, it was not only to pay for our sin, it was to make a way for God to be with us, and therefore hope was being born in that night when Jesus was born. This means simply that you and I are not alone. The moment you become a Christian, you gain full access to the presence of God. Full, unfettered, unrestricted, unhindered access to the very presence of God. If you want to know how you can know that and be reminded of that, it's when you walk in here and you see each other. That's meant to go, oh, Jesus is with me. When you speak an encouragement to someone else, just because the Holy Spirit prompted you to do it, or you give a hug, or I don't know what we're doing now, elbow rub, or whatever it is. That's not just you being friendly. That is you pouring out, giving the presence of Christ to other people. Even when you sing a little louder than you're comfortable singing, loud enough for the person next to you to hear you sing, or behind you. It's a reminder, I'm not alone. Christ is with me. This is what you gain when you become a Christian. You gain access to this. You become the receiver of eternal perfect hope. That he not only is with you now, but he is coming again to wipe away every tear. None of us will say there's even one injustice that was unleveled out by him in the end. No one will stand in heaven before Christ and shake their fists and say, yeah, there's that one thing that somebody did to me that you didn't pay for. We will see every single injustice paid for and settled forever. And we will be with him forever. That's good news. That's why they call it the gospel. It's great news. This is what happened on Christmas. And we get to talk about it before Christmas. Right? So why don't we stand up together and I'm going to pray for you. And I, What I specifically want to pray is if you're online, you don't have to stand up. You can if you want. Um, I want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit. This is what he, what he came for was to be the presence of Christ in you and through you. So I want to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to just pour himself out on us this morning and that we would receive that so that we can be useful in the kingdom of God. Amen? So let's pray. God, thank you for coming to be with us. Thank you for the reminder in communion this morning that you are indeed with us, that you made a way. There, is no sep there's a, there doesn't have to be a separation between us and you. So God, first I pray for anyone who has not received that from you, God, who has not Give, put their faith in you, that they have not um, made you Lord of their life, they have not become a Christian, God, that you would show them that life may not be easy, but you want to be with them too. God, help them to be hungry for that. And God, I pray for all the rest of us, God, that we would be filled now by your Spirit, God, by your presence, that the presence of Christ would be in us to its greatest extent, that we would be aware of it right now that it would use us in the world to be your presence. 
God, that we would be your presence to each other, that we would be your presence out there, outside of these walls. God, I pray that we would be, it would be an unstoppable thing in us that we cannot contain. God, we pray this in the name of your awesome son, Jesus. Amen. All right. I think that's it. Love you guys. We'll see you next time.